Hello, and welcome to NapTown. I'm your host, Susan Neville, and our guest for this initial series of interviews is writer Dan Wakefield. Mr. Wakefield is the author of nine nonfiction books, two memoirs, and five novels, including the best-selling Going All the Way. Bill Moyers called Dan's memoir, Returning, A Spiritual Journey, one of the most important memoirs of the spirit I have ever read. Of his book, Island in the City, The World of Spanish Harlem, James Baldwin wrote, Dan Wakefield has a remarkable combination of humility and tough-mindedness that makes these streets and these struggling people come alive. Over the next few episodes, we'll be talking to Mr. Wakefield about his life, including his deep friendships with writers such as Baldwin, Anne Sexton, Joan Didion, and Kurt Vonnegut, and his interviews as a staff writer for The Nation, The Atlantic Monthly, The New York Times, and other newspapers and magazines, with such luminaries as Bobby Kennedy, C. Wright Mills, Dorothy Day, Adam Clayton Powell, Joan Baez, and Golden Meir, some of whom became good friends. Again, I'm your host, Susan Neville, and welcome Mr. Wakefield back to NapTown. Talking about some of my great professors at Columbia, and I think I just started talking about Lionel Trilling. Lionel Trilling, he was considered the literary critic of the country. I mean, everybody knew of him. He had a book of essays called The Liberal Education with really wonderful, accessible. Essays. I remember in particular one on the Masters and Johnson work that was really fabulous. And he also had written a novel that got a great deal of attention called The Middle of the Journey. And it was based on the Whitaker Chambers and Alger His case. Chambers had actually been a student of Lionel Trelling at Columbia. So he knew him very well. Chambers, in real life, wrote a book called Witness, where he had claimed before the Un-American Activities Committee uh, investigating communism in America, and he claimed that Alger Hiss had been a fellow communist with him in the 1930s. And his, to his dying day, denied that. And nobody has ever totally affirmed either point of view. And it continued to be debated. But one thing telling about this era in New York, this was an era of everything was about Freudian analysis, Freudian interpretation. And there was a rumor among the students that Lionel Trilling had for a long time wanted to write a novel, but was blocked or something, and he couldn't write the novel. And the rumor was that he then underwent Freudian analysis, 
and that enabled him to write the novel, The Middle of the Journey. But it didn't enable him to write any other novels. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just finished reading Kate Jamison's biography of Robert Lowell. Yeah. And I don't know, it just strikes me that one of the things he said is that he, I mean, he went through decades of Freudian analysis and then finally started taking lithium. And he said it had been like, you know, decades of just wasted talk. Well, you know, I had a chapter in my book, my memoir called Returning, A Spiritual Journey. And it was about my experience with Freudian analysis, which was very destructive. And I feel like I was lucky to get out of it alive, frankly. I know this is an aside, but can you explain a little bit why? I remember mostly from the chapter just being fascinated by the way you describe New York, the skies at night being filled with dreams, <laughs> you know, waiting to be taken into someone to interpret. Yeah, especially over the Upper East Side right. where all the analysts were. But Freudian analysis. In New York at that time, that was its heyday, and people talked about it all the time. I remember being at a party, and there was a woman who had supposedly been in a successful analysis and who said that at the end it was like if you'd been swimming in a big body of water and your hand touched the shore. And everybody wanted to be the person whose hand touched the shore. But boy, my hand never touched the shore. When at Columbia, I had seen a psychiatrist who I liked very much, and we just talked like human beings, and that was very helpful. And I wanted to continue that. But he said, no, you're the perfect candidate Mm -hmm. for psychoanalysis. And he recommended an analyst who I really didn't like. And I said, to the analyst, does it matter that I don't like you? And he said, no. And finally, after I think about three years, I sat up on the couch and said I couldn't keep talking to this guy. I know what happened. I had been in the waiting room, and the door, I thought, was open to crack. And so I went in to his inner sanctum, to his office, and he got very angry. And I just thought, man, that's it. This guy is such a jerk. (laughs) So he recommended another guy. So the next guy I went to, was a nicer man, but he was, you know, I was very honest with these guys. I said to the second guy, you know, you don't seem especially intelligent or (laughs) perceptive. Does that matter? And, of course, whatever you said, they would say, yes, go on. (laughs) And never was there any human interchange. And as this was going on, I was drinking more and more. I was really drinking myself to harm. And that wasn't a part of it. You know, I mean, it was crazy to be able to be drinking like that and think you were undergoing some treatment. 
I don't think anybody would do that today. But I think Anne Sexton was another victim of this. By the way, I love her poetry. I knew her. I thought she was great. And I always felt Sylvia Plath was unfairly overrated compared to Anne. They were contemporaries. And I just, I really loved Anne's poem. One of her poems in particular, I remember, was called You, Dr. Martin. And Anne had been in one of the famous mental hospitals. And in the hospital, this doctor, Dr. Martin, used to come every day. And evidently, she saw him having breakfast first in the, some kind of cafeteria and then going to see patients. So she has a poem called You, Dr. Martin. The poem begins, You, Dr. Martin, go from breakfast to madness. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved that Anne Sexton's poetry is so seemingly plain. She's like the Orwell of poetry. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are no fancy words. There's nothing you don't understand. I remember one of her poems inspired by Thoreau. It's called Kind Sir These Woods. And it's about playing a game as a little girl where you turned around and around as fast as you could with your eyes closed. and then. You stopped and opened your eyes, try to see where you were, reorient yourself. And she described that process and then said, and then what you found was only yourself caught between the grapes and the thorns. Mm. Anyway, I wish more people would read her poetry now. In fact, this is the kind of thing that drives me nuts. People who write biographies of writers who don't like the writers, why would you do that? I mean, the biography of Vonnegut is that way. It's very negative. And the author only knew Vonnegut in the last few years of his life when Vonnegut was very ill and not in great shape or feeling great. And it's as if that's who Vonnegut was all his life anyway. But I remember that in the introduction to the biography of Anne Sexton, the one that I think was the first one, the writer says that she really didn't much admire Anne's poetry. So why in the name of God are you writing the book? And anyway, I feel like Anne Sexton is very underrated. I think anybody, if you're going to write fiction or journalism, whatever, you would benefit by reading Anne Sexton's poems. And Her first book of poetry, which in a way was one of the greatest, was called To Bedlam and Part Way Back. And some of the poems in that are just stunning. And then I think her last one was called Live or Die, 
and the epigraph was live or die, but don't poison everything. Mm. And I remember she had a necklace with a medallion that said in Latin, don't let the bastards get you. She had bad reviews, but she was very brave. And I remember toward the end of her career, she assembled a rock band that went with her. And yeah, and it was called Anne Sexton and Her Kind. Oh, I have been her kind. Yeah, it was great. It was on college campuses everywhere. I remember I had the privilege of introducing her once at a talk at Harvard. I had dinner with her first with a friend, and the friend was really worried that she was going to drink too much and that I was going to drink too much. And I remember the only thing to drink was the sangria. And Anne and I just guzzled the sangria. (laughs) And Anne was terribly worried. She didn't think enough people were going to show up. She didn't think that there, you know, it was in too big an auditorium. People wouldn't come. We got there. And there were people standing around outside, and she said, see, there's just that little group of people. They're waiting to go in. Well, it turned out the whole place was filled to the rafters, Mm. and she was a great reader, too. So, You know, it really interests me, and I'm not sure why the 50s and, uh, in some ways, the early 60s, but in particular, I mean, you were talking about Lionel Trilling going through analysis, yeah. and you going through analysis, so you have these poets yeah. who are writing about madness, and then you have a fascination with analysis. I mean, does that have any, do you know why you lived through it? Was it a post-war thing? Was it just a fascination that human beings get now and then with? themselves. Yeah, with themselves. You yeah. think that's what it was? And it was supposed to, well, Mae Swenson, another great poet and a great friend of mine, wrote a poem I always love called The Key to Everything. And starts out, is there anything I can do or has everything been done or don't you want me to do it or what? You're waiting for the right person, the father or the person or whose name you keep mumbling in your sleep. Maybe that's my name, really. But when you find it, I'll be gone then. I'll be far away. I love that. And it was like, it was supposed to be the key to everything. It was like, you know, you'd wake up in this great, You know, like a god or something, you would wake up without any of the human errors and false starts and neuroses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Luckily, that kind of five-day-a-week analysis is very rarely done now. I heard five or six years ago that there was a small group in San Francisco doing it, but... It was deadly, and I swear, I think I was really lucky to live through it. Wow. Because uh, it allowed you to not focus on the drinking? No, because it opened up some nightmare stuff in my mind. And one of the images I'll never forget, I was lying on the floor of the analyst 
and I had picked up a leg of a chair and I was hitting myself with it. And the analyst, the time was, the hour was about up and he wanted to get me out of there. And he said, was there a friend he could call, a friend of mine he could call to come and help me get home? And I told him to call Robert Phelps, who was a great mentor, a writer, an editor. Robert really hated analysis and sort of ironic that he's the guy, but I knew he would be home and so on. And Robert came and he looked at me on the floor. He was furious. And he said to the doctor, he pointed to me and he said to the doctor, you did this. Uh. And he took me home and Robert was so furious. He didn't even stay with me. He just took me home and left. Oh he gosh. was, you know, anyway, that's enough of that. Yeah, we can get back to Lionel Trilling, actually, because there's, you know, there's something <laughs> very literary, like literary exegesis, too. Yeah, yeah. To that kind of analysis, so. Well, I wanted to say about Trilling, I didn't realize this till later, I think, that he was the first Jew who was made a professor in the Columbia English Department. I mean, and that was in, I think, the late 40s. So that time was so repressive and so, I mean, in a way, it was the opposite of repressive, but culturally, you know, this is a time where my good friend Meg Greenfield, who later became editorial page editor of the Washington Post and a columnist for Newsweek, she went to Smith and had a Fulbright. And she wanted to go to England to study with a great English literary critic named F.R. Levis. And she got there and was told that women couldn't study with F.R. Levis. No. The only way women could come to the popular class of Mark Van Doren, this was Barnard's students, would be if they got a date with a guy in the class who brought them. To class? Yeah. You would bring a date to class? I mean, I'm horrified by the fact that women weren't allowed to take the class and also horrified by the fact that people used classes as an opportunity for dating. But Yeah. (laughs) And, well, imagine the level of academic interest in students at Barnard who wanted to go to the trouble to butter up some guy to get to be able to go hear Mark Van Doren give a lecture. The guy's a dweeb, but I want to hear Mark Van Doren talk about Yates. Yeah. But at any rate, to Trilling, for a long time, I was afraid of taking one of his courses because at Columbia at that time, if you were an English major, you either thought Mark Van Doren was God or Lionel Trilling was God. And I was one of the Van Doren acolytes. And so Trilling had the image of being this ultra-literary guy and the students who were 
his followers were the ultra-literary, I felt pretentious kind of students, but I felt I had to take one course of his. So I took a course called Wordsworth, Keats, and Yeats, and turned out to be one of the best courses I ever had. And the very first class, first thing Trilling said was, during the course of this class, I don't want any of you to read any criticism, literary criticism, of Wordsworth, Keats, or Yeats. And one of the ultra-literary students said, "Uh, well, Professor Trilling, what then shall we read? (laughs) And Trilling said, every poem written by Wordsworth, Keats, and Yeats. And that was where I learned to read poetry. And it was really, it was a great course. He was a great teacher. And these guys, nationally known professors, they graded their own papers. They taught their class. They had office hours. They were accessible, which is the total opposite of Harvard, where I spent a year as a Neiman Fellow and where the professors were like movie stars gave a great lecture, walked off, and graduate students taught the classes of Harvard. And I've always felt Harvard as the most overrated, pretentious (laughs) institution in North America. It's funny. I'm thinking about how did Lionel Trilling teach a Yeats poem? Do you remember? I mean, you weren't looking at it through a critical lens, was it? Did he have you memorize things? Did he look at each sound? I mean, how did you? One of the things he said was, when I say read this poem, I don't mean read it once. I mean read it 12 times or 14 times until you have really absorbed it, incorporated it into yourself. And there was no special technique. It was human understanding of the words. And, you know, that the famous poem, The Second Coming, I realized that was, you know, where in the part that says, what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. And well, before that, says, somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man is moving its slow thighs while all around it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. And now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. And that's what we're experiencing now. Islam and the West the East and the West, and Yeats saw that. 
And that's what that poem is about. Every single line in that poem. I mean, I know yeah. Joan Didion used a couple of them for, for yeah. book titles, but every single line is so resonant. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. So you just, as a class, you would discuss the poem. Yeah. Obviously uh, take it in in some ways. I'm always amazed because when we get in here and start talking, you have so much poetry in your head. Yeah. And, I mean, that was, again, yeah. from memory. And, and also, it was part of New York at that time. That was the good part, as opposed to analysis. I remember seeing in different kitchens, people had taped up copies of Dylan Thomas's poem, What's the famous Do poem? not go gentle. Do not go gentle into that good night. And also, you know, a lot of other poets were very miffed that Dylan Thomas' records of him reading his poetry sold more than their books. <laughs> and those records, I still have them. They were just astounding. His voice, his delivery, it was mesmerizing. Was it the voice? I'm just really curious about, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, inside that head, there's this amazing sponge of a brain mm -hmm. that has kept all the poetry for years. And then I also wonder, when you mentioned the records, was it the sound of readings that helped those poems become lodged uh, in you, like you heard the... Maybe, but... I guess you probably I, I, can't know. Like asking Oscar Robertson... <laughs> how do you jump or how do you get that ball? In the but I think, you know, in that when I took Trowing's class at Columbia, I don't think I'd heard any readings, any poetry readings at that time. So I, is that the point at which you started kind of collecting the poems by memory or did you yeah, well, have so some I, when you went to Columbia? You know what? When I went to Columbia... Well, yeah. In those days, in grade school, you read poems. In the first grade at School 80, there was a poetry contest, and you had to recite a poem. And it was won by Susan Fox, who recited Carl Sandburg's Fog. <laughs> because it was the shortest poem. Right. I recited this long damn thing. All I remember is the line, poor old Jonathan Bing, he got in his carriage to visit the king. <laughs> I don't even remember what happened. And then at scout camp, there were poems, there were these corny poems in the Boy Scout Manual by Edgar A. Guest and his ilk that we made fun of. And I remember, you know, we'd sit around in the cabin and one of them started out, he may now be a office boy, a messenger, or a clerk, the smallest paid in the employ of him who gives him work, and then he could <laughs> rise to be a captain of industry or something. And I remember a guy in my cabin at camp once named David Lewis, and he used to recite a great poem that I've never heard since called Ivan Skovitsky Skovar. And it was something about 
The mightiest man in the ranks of the czar was Ivan Savinsky's Sabar. <laughs> but poetry was part of normal life mm -hmm. in that era, in the 1930s and 40s. I was in the first grade with Mrs. Roxy Lingle Day in, let's see, 1938. And that's when we had the poetry contest. This makes me think about, you know, our education system and what it'll be like 10, 20 years from now. Who knows? Do you want to talk a little bit, since we're focusing on the teachers at mm. Columbia today, about how you ended up going to Columbia, why Columbia, what attracted you to the <coughs> curriculum? It was a very simple thing. I had read an essay by Mark Van Doren called Education by Books. And it talked about how you could get an education just by reading the great books of the world. And that became the model for St. John's University. And then Van Doren, I think, created, it was a requirement of the first two years at Columbia uh, Humanities course where you read the great literary artists, and then it was accompanied by the first two years called Contemporary Civilization, where you read the great thinkers. I remember it was CCA, was Plato and Aristotle and the boys, and then CCB, the second year, was Freud and Jung and Veblen and so on. And one of the students said, CCB is all the guys who are trying to someday be in CCA. <laughs> but anyway, and Van Doren made me feel at home because he was from Illinois and he had that flat Midwestern accent. His first class I went to with two new friends, classmates at Columbia, and we came out of the class, I said, oh, Van Dorn was great, wasn't he? And one of the guys, they were both from New York, uh, and said, well, he was too Midwestern. And I <laughs> said, yeah, that's it, that's it. And again, Van Doren, I remember going into his office, and I heard he'd said in class that he had given a talk at Dartmouth. So I went into his class and said, well, I went to high school with a friend who's at Dartmouth now, and I told him all about John Sigler, later of the CIA. <laughs> and Van Doren said, oh, I wish I had known he was your friend. I would have said something to him. And Van Doren, yeah, his classes were very popular. I mean, he had like 80 or 100 students, and he not only graded every paper, he not only wrote a comment on them, he handed them back at the next class. Mm. It was Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. If you handed in your paper on Monday, you got it back Wednesday with a comment from Mark Van Doren. That's kind of amazing. I mean, I was just thinking when you said that the whole first two years of the curriculum at Columbia, mm. that he had started that. That's kind of an amazing kind of service approach, I guess. Yes. You know, a lot of 
people, let alone writers who have their own obsessions, wouldn't necessarily do. So it says a lot about... I have to say another great thing that happened in one of Van Doren's classes. One of the friends in my class, who was a writer, who became a friend throughout life, was Ivan Gold. And he had had a tremendous story in the Columbia Review, the literary magazine. So one day, in Van Doren's class called The Narrative Art, in which we read Homer, the Bible, Dante, Cervantes, and Shakespeare, Van Doren one day comes in and starts the class by saying, one of you has written a story that is very powerful and that is a kind of landmark of this era we're living in. And uh, I believe Mr. Gold has captured something important. And Mr. Gold was sitting right in the row in front of me, and he kind of slunk down in his seat like, oh, my God. And the point Van Doren wanted to make, that in this story of Ivan's, it was about basically what in those days was called a gangbang. It was a rape, except the woman was, I guess, I don't know, technically, the woman was willing to have sex with the boys in this gang in the Bronx. And after she did that, there was some kind of breakdown, and she was gone from the neighborhood for a year. And it was understood that she was in some kind of a hospital. And when she came back, she didn't want to have sex with anybody. And everybody was amazed at how she had changed, how this genuine, deep personality change had come from her being in a psychiatric hospital. So what Van Doren said was, in our stories up to this era, the people who were changed, whose whole personality would change, the change was credited to God, that some God or gods had affected a change that completely changed this person. Now, it's not a god, it's psychiatry that changes the person. And we've entered a new era when that happens. And he was right, of course. It's sort of disturbing, too. I mean, I remember that phrase from when I was a kid, gangbang. It was yeah. so awful. It seems like another era would be understanding that whatever happened to the woman, that changed her. I mean, she was changed by the violence before she entered the psychiatric but, hospital. Otherwise, but, she wouldn't have gone. At first, 
The first change was simply that she had to be sent to the hospital because she couldn't function. You know, it was that she was so devastated by this experience that her family, the only recourse they could imagine was to send her to the hospital to have psychiatric So in the story, the first change is that she actually was accepting of what was going to happen to her in the point of view of the story. Yeah. Yeah. And then after it happened, she was so devastated that she couldn't function. And then she's sent to the hospital and she comes back and she's able to function. But she no longer wants to have sex with anybody. And we would look at that and say it was from the trauma of the event itself, I guess. Yeah, but you're leaving out the step that she was not able to speak or function until she went to the Yeah, no, I understand. I understand. Yeah, Yeah. that I get. So that was the... So did Ivan Gold, what, did that turn him into no longer a person who wrote stories, getting all that attention from his teacher, or did he continue to write? Oh, he wrote great stories. In fact, and then that story, Van Doren himself sent the issue of the Columbia Review that had the story to an editor at a great publication of the era called New World Writing. There were two mass-market paperback literary magazines, New World Writing and Discovery. And I was really awed to be invited to write something for New World Writing when I was writing for The Nation. And I wrote a piece about Salinger called Salinger and the Search for Love. And New World Writing published, you know, Tennessee Williams and Gore Vidal and many great writers. They published, they were the first publication to publish a part of On the Road. And so Ivan's story was in there. And then he continued to write these long stories of like 40 to 60 pages which was called An Awkward Length. And it was awkward in the sense that it was too long for most magazines and too short for a book. So he finally had a book of them published called Nickel Miseries. And Lionel Trilling wrote a blurb for it that Ivan and his friends later decided had ruined his career because Trilling said these stories show that Mr. Gold will become one of the commanding writers of his time. And Ivan used to say when he sat down to write, he felt like he had his mother looking over one shoulder and Lionel Trilling (laughs) looking over the other. But I remember one of the great thrills I had was that Ivan was in London 
uh, this is amazing. He's the only person I've ever heard who could pull this off. He got the GI Bill to go study Japanese in London. What? He had been in Japan after the Korean War, and he wrote some stories set there, and then somehow he parlayed the GI Bill into sending him to London. But when he was in London, he sent back to me. He didn't have an agent, and he sent to me, said, could you see if you could get this published? And it was a great, long story called The Nickel Misery of George Washington Carver Brown. And it was about a black guy in basic training in the Army who was killed when he falls off some tower that he's supposed to climb. At any rate, and his name was George Washington Carver Brown. But I can tell you still the first sentence of that story, which was, the day that Carver Brown fell backwards from the freshly painted pinnacle of failure was the day before Thanksgiving Day. It dawned in frozen reds and blues without portent. And, you know, just the rhythm of that. And I took it to Harold Hayes at Esquire. He was the features editor, not the fiction editor. But I said, listen, this is a great story. And he gave it to the fiction editor, recommending it. And it got published in Esquire. And it was a great triumph because, you know, and they paid $750. Ah. And... I was able to send him that in London. So when you think back to your days, like if you had gone to a different college. If I had gone to Harvard, I would have been a numbskull. A numbskull. Why? Because I would have been taught by a bunch of graduate students, not by real professors who had this incredible fun of knowledge and experience of teaching. And also, the other thing is, what I realized in my year as a Neiman Fellow at Harvard is that the faculty of Harvard could imagine they were the most important people in the world because in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard was the most important thing. So they were stars in that little world. At Columbia, you were in the midst of Manhattan. You were no more than any of the next fabulous institutions. And as a matter of fact, Columbia Van Doren and Trilling would recommend publishers. I remember one of my classmates and the three of us, me and Ivan Gold and Sam Astrakhan, we're great friends throughout our lives. And Sam had his first novel accepted when he was a senior at Columbia. And that's because it's either Van Doren or Trilling sent the novel to Robert Giroux, who was a partner in the great literary firm of Ferrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It was for a time. Mm-hmm. And Bob Giroux had been a student 
of Van Doren, and they published Sam's first book. Mm. And again, that was a kind of curse because he thought everything was going to be easy from then on, and his next two novels never got published, and then... Everything's a curse. I mean, yeah. that's that's what I got from reading Tilly Olson's book, Silences. It, you know, you're silenced by being too good. You're silenced by publishing too early. There's just so many things. Yeah. By having someone praise you too much or too little, it's just, it's hard. That's something, because I'm now trying to write about Joan Didion. She had a damn will of Iron. It's will. It really is. A will of iron. Nothing was going. And the other thing, he had a clear eye. And also, rereading her work, she did the work. She, I remember we used to talk about how we hated to go to what we called the Hall of Records, you know, where he had to do the research. But Joan... Even at the last, she was going to the damn Hall of Mm -hmm. Records. She never just wrote anything out of fluff in her mind. She had exactness, pinpoint exactness. So that's really awesome. Yeah, actually, you don't think about Will that often, but it's like, well, you were in my Vonnegut class yeah. this morning from Sirens of Titan, the thing that powers the universe, the universal will to become. I think, yeah, that's what it is. There's and, something and, inside you that's a and look, universal look, will to make or to become or to do. Look at Vonnegut. He didn't go to any writing class, writing school. He kept writing, and he had rejection from everybody in America. And it wasn't till he was 27, after writing steadily from Shortridge High School on, continuing to get rejections, continuing to write new stories, continuing to send them out. Yeah, he had that kind of will. I mean, it's partly, I guess, a belief in yourself, do you think? But partly it's, I don't know, it's just like this is what I'm supposed to do, and it's just... Well, it's just pure stubbornness, uh, or you don't even notice after a while all the times you've been rejected. I mean, you look at it and say, oh, my God, that's a list. I lost it for a long time, and we could figure out 65 reasons why. But I was thinking when I'm doing this piece on Joan Didion, and I started out, and I realized this is really going to be hard. And then I realized I just had to sit there until it happened. And that's what I've been doing. And it was like a great feeling of relief. Yes, this is what you do. I think I've commented on this before, but with you, this is something that I've seen. Like, you're always working on something. You're always thinking about something new. I mean, you will say, oh, there are times when I wasn't. And maybe that's true and probably is true. But still, I mean, that will is still there. It's like probably harder on yourself. No, I tell you, I'm at an age now that I feel like anything I'm going to do, I've got to do it now. Mm -hmm. I'm really lucky to have lived this long. Nobody, including me, would have ever foreseen 
that I would be sitting here at 87 damn years old. <laughs> and, you know, it's incredible. And so, yeah, there's a lot I want to do. And I don't know, here's another Columbia hero. When I was there was Herman Wolk. Oh, I loved Herman Wolk. And when I was at Columbia, he had only written a couple novels. And the one we all talked about, he wrote a novel about the advertising business called Aurora Dawn. Mm -hmm. And this was before the Kane mutiny. But, yeah, he was writing, he was publishing when I think he was 101. Was he really? Yeah. What was, do you know what his last novel is? I don't. I don't. The last one I checked out was with The Winds of War. He was probably only 80 then. Wow. So, but I just know reading about him really publishing something. I loved The Winds of War and War and Remembrance. And, yeah. Yeah. He was pretty amazing. I didn't realize he was teaching at Columbia. No, he didn't too. teach. He was a oh, student. He did, oh, he was a student. Yeah. So you heard about him just like at Short Ridge, you would hear about Madeline Pugh. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's funny. So we probably overran, did we? No, I think we didn't really overrun. Oh, okay. But, you know, if there's anything you want to add about your college years. Did you take science and math classes? Oh, God. <laughs> Let me tell you, when people say, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? I knew in the first grade because it was the only thing I could do. <laughs> I mean, literally, numbers were like a shroud of mystery. I love pictures, but I couldn't make them. <laughs> Musically, you know, they used to have something called a rhythm band in the first grade, and you people were given the triangle, the bells, and if you had no talent at all, you were given the rhythm sticks, which is just... Oh, I remember those, yeah. Yeah, just two pieces of wood that you banged on the floor. Well, I, of course, was given the rhythm sticks, and then... I tried to play the clarinet. I played the clarinet in like the third, fourth, and fifth grade. And there were, say, five chairs, five clarinets in the school lady orchestra. And as younger people came up, they would pass me by. I was <laughs> always fifth chair. And there would always be a little puddle below my clarinet, which is when you don't play very well, that's what happens that somehow your saliva comes out. I don't know. But, yeah, I was hopeless with that. I can never see through a microscope in science class. I loved, actually, I didn't love science class. I like reading about science, but I yeah. hated the smell of the lab. And well, But, you know, you put my eye in front of a microscope and I could go to the left, the right, up, down. I can never get it to focus and see something down there. It just was uh, impossible. So this was pretty amazing. I remember I could do addition, subtraction, and multiplication. When we got to long division, I was out of it. And so... As a freshman at Shortridge, I had to take algebra. Algebra 1 was taught by a wonderful man who was also a school guidance counselor named Claude M. Kiesling. 
and he was such a nice guy. At the end of the semester, he called in my parents for a conference, and I joined them. And Mr. Kiesling told my parents while I sat there, said, I know your son has tried, but if I were to pass him into Algebra 2, it would be a crime. Oh. A crime. <laughs> a crime. So the only way I got through geometry was I volunteered to give a report on Pythagoras. So I got up and gave a talk, which was my strong point, mm -hmm. and got through that. At Columbia, you were allowed to take one course a semester in the night school, which was called general studies, and you knew that was going to be the easy one. So it came to the dreaded math. I had to take a year of math. So I went to general studies, and I looked in the doorways of all the teachers doing the math, and I saw one woman who looked very friendly and nice, and I was really right, because I took her class. I really tried. I couldn't, I didn't understand anything. After the final, she called me in and asked me if I had been drunk. Oh, and no. So I told her that I wanted to be a writer, that I needed this to graduate. And she said, if you will promise me never to have anything to do with numbers <laughs> in your life. Like, please don't be working on rockets or something. That yeah. You could so, create Man. So I'll give you the lowest passing grade. Oh, I that's a great That's absolutely true. Well, with that, we end here. Thanks again to Mr. Wakefield, and thank you to our listeners for listening. Naptown is taped at Butler University's Irwin Library with the help of Megan Rutledge-Grady. Funding for NapTown was provided by the Ayers Fund, National Endowment for the Humanities, and Indiana Humanities. This is a Dominique Weldon, Rory Deshmer production. Again, this is your host, Susan Neville. See you next time in NapTown. Mm -hmm.